Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, and go ahead and take your seats. Welcome to Faith Church Seattle, apparently. Uh, all this rain, uh, thankful for it, grateful for it, and we'll enjoy it because we know it won't last uh, too long. But uh, this morning, uh, it kind of fitting that it's cloudy and gloomy outside because the text is going to feel, in some ways, a little cloudy and a little gloomy uh, with respect to what God has for us. So turn to 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, and as you're turning to 1 Peter 4, I want you to think of both a sword and a scalpel. As you think about those two objects, right, they share a number of similarities. Uh, they're both uh, items, both blades that are composed of similar materials uh, that are intended to cut. And yet the intention of a cut that you uh, would intend with a sword is wildly different than what you would intend with a scalpel, a, a, a sword, the, the intention of a cut is to thrash and to gash, to wound, harm, or even kill. And a scalpel, in its cut, is intended to be precise and accurate and exact with the purpose that while it also brings pain, it is the pathway towards healing and restoration. And the text that we come to this morning, if you have read ahead, probably felt more like a sword than a scalpel, that you felt gashed, thrashed, gutted. And yet, what God's Word intends to do this morning is with incredible precision to lead us through into a pathway precisely of God's intention towards healing and restoration. So here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning. It's this idea right here, that God prepares us for suffering and equips us to respond for His glory. Let me say that again. God prepares us for suffering and equips us to respond for His glory. Now, my sense is most of you, upon hearing that main idea, weren't thrilled about what's in front of us. Yes! More suffering! Loved ones, that's where God has us, and while you might not be thrilled about what is in front of us, this is an utterly essential word that we need to hear. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. I would encourage you to follow along. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all time. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the ways uh, that your word will cut uh, with precision. And, and a specific intention to help, to heal, to remedy what is going on inside of us. 
Father, we ask that in these coming moments that we would submit and surrender ourselves entirely to your word, to the fullness of what you have for us. God, that we would not push or press against what it is that you want to tell us, but instead that we would humbly embrace what your word is so graciously giving to us. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque and for Stephen Baum. God, praying for that body of believers that you'd be honored and glorified in them in the same way that we ask and desire that you'd be glorified in us. So God, come now. Do the work that only you could do. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is Glorious Suffering. Glorious Suffering. And again, this idea that God prepares us for suffering uh, and equips us to respond for His glory. Uh, The point being, loved one, that your suffering is for and accomplishes God's work and God's glory. And and we've, uh, over these last couple of chapters, have seen this progression that Peter is moving us through, and really we've reached the crescendo. This is the pinnacle or the climax of exhortation on suffering that has been in view over the last couple of chapters. And so here's my warning. We're in the deep end right out of the gate, and it will only get deeper Uh, the longer that we are in this text. So you have been warned, uh, no shallow end in our text here this morning. So as we think about glorious suffering, let's begin with this idea right here, verse 12. We are not surprised by suffering. We are not surprised by suffering. Now notice where he starts. Look at that first word, beloved. This is a term of affection and of tenderness. Peter loves these people. He loves those that he's writing to, and he wants them to be ready for the difficulty that is coming for them if it hasn't already arrived upon them. So this is not some cold, indifferent word that Peter is giving them. No, it's because he loves them, and he loves these people that he's willing to give this hard word. In fact, just make a quick note. The people who love you the most are the people that are willing to tell you what you need to hear. Not what you want to hear. The, the people that love you are going to tell you what you need to hear. God help us that we'd be people who are willing to, willing to tell one another what we need to hear. Right? We're willing to say the hard thing in a tender way because that's exactly what Peter's doing here. And here's the exhortation. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's like, don't, don't be surprised. So listen, if your biblical or if your perspective, your theology of suffering is shaped socially, you are going to be surprised when suffering comes upon you. And further, in that, you're probably going to ask the wrong questions. You're probably going to seek the wrong solutions. You're going to find yourself wondering whether or not God has distanced himself from you. You're probably confused as to what's going on. And you may ultimately end up in a place where you feel embittered and angry at God. But if your theology of suffering is shaped biblically, right, what does God have to say about this? If you let God's word shape your theology of suffering, you are far less likely to be surprised because you're far more likely to see God's purposes unfolding, even if you can't specifically identify what God's doing in that moment. And you're not going to be shocked by suffering in this life because you see what the Bible's telling us. 
And so we have to endeavor to be people who are going to see what God's Word is saying and not simply hearing what we want to hear. We've got no interest in tickling ears, only an interest in declaring and proclaiming what God has already told us. So we're not surprised by suffering. In fact, make note of a few different ways we see this play out. First of all, we see this, that we are to anticipate trials. <clears throat> we're to anticipate trials. We're not shocked. We're not surprised. We're not saying, where'd that come from? Right? The difficulty and hardship and suffering is a part of life. He says, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you. That when denotes a level of certainty. It's going to happen. Now, what, what does he mean by trials? Might it be helpful to understand that? In fact, he refers to trials earlier in the book. Do you remember back in 1.6 when he said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So what are these various trials that he's alluding to? Well, it's certainly the verbal and physical persecution that they've experienced. It's various forms of mistreatment and injustice. But it's also the suffering that comes with living in a broken world, right? That there's illness, and there's chronic pain, and there's cancer, and disease, and death. It's seasons of lack, right? Maybe there's a lack of provision, or a lack of position, a lack of power. It also encapsulates the, the, the darkness of, of our soul, the dark moments of our soul, where the enemy attacks us. This and so many other things is what would encapsulate these trials, in short, what Peter wants us to know is life's not a vacation, and we're not to be surprised. We anticipate this is part of what it is to follow Jesus. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be trials. But notice, I think this is interesting. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. It's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Why might he use that word? Might he be wanting us to think of maybe something else. Is, can you think of anywhere else in the Bible where there's a fiery trial? Anyone got an idea? Daniel, right? Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, now, I want you to just think about this for a second. I think this is actually an allusion to Daniel 3, and I want you to consider the similarities between what was going on in Daniel 3 and what the people that Peter are writing to are dealing with. They're both exiles who are experiencing hostility, right? They're suffering for righteousness, and there is no certainty for their deliverance. In fact, in Daniel 3, right, Nebuchadnezzar sets up that dumb golden statue, and that whenever the music plays, you're supposed to bow down to it. And of course, these three guys don't do it, and they don't bow to the statues. And so, so Nebuchadnezzar brings them in. Here's their question, right, the question that Nebuchadnezzar poses to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Amongst other things, he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There's an arrogance in his posture and his position. Here's their response. They said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Love what they say. They're saying, listen, God is capable. He is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He could do that if he wants to. But make no mistake, he will definitely deliver us from you, Nebuchadnezzar. And so don't miss what they're saying. They're saying, listen, we might not actually survive the fire. We might die when you throw us in. But don't you ever think for a moment that we haven't been delivered from you. 
See, and th- this is a word that the exiles need, that, 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 that Peter wants to deliver to them. Loved ones, this is a word you and I need, right, to be reminded. We might even die for our allegiance to Jesus, but they can't hold us. They can't have us. And I love that. And so Peter is using this example of what happens in Daniel 3. He's telling these exiles, he's like, guys, you're, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. You're not the first uh, to suffer, and you're not alone because in the same way that the Lord joined them in the fire, he will also join you. So he's saying, don't be surprised and hold fast. But there's one other note here that I think is worth making with respect to what's going on here in this fiery trial. Because I think sometimes, particularly you look at things like in, in Daniel, we're so far removed from it. We see them thrown into the fire. They don't die, right? And then they're promoted. And we just kind of look at Daniel 3 like it's this happily ever after portrait. It's not. They're still living in exile. They're still hated by people that they live around. I'm sure they had bigger targets on their back, not smaller ones after that. And so we, 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 we got we to dispel with this idea. If I can just get through this, then everything's going to be okay. Happily ever after comes in eternity. That's when it's going to come. So you got to ask yourself, are you ready to suffer? Are you anticipating suffering? Do you understand this is the pathway? Don't be surprised. And then he goes on and he says this, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you. Right? Part of not being surprised is we actually understand the gift of God's testing in our trials. That God's trials and his testing is a gift to us. You're like, Mike, you've lost it. Do you hear what you're saying? No, that, that, that's what God's word is telling us, guys. Why can I call testing a gift? Because God's testing is never pointless. It's never meaningless. It always has a purpose. And our testing and our suffering, it will always reveal our true allegiances and our true affections and where they ultimately lie. And so regardless of of the result, whether good or bad, whether we pass or fail, it's a gift because it's going to serve to encourage us or to offer a corrective for us. Let me try to illustrate. Let's imagine, right, that this test in your life comes up and you, you pass the test. What it confirms for you is your love for Jesus. It confirms that you belong to Christ, in that you are encouraged and bolstered. And the reality that, at least in my life, seems to be the case is more often is that we fail the test. And yet I would argue there's even a gift in the failure. Because what the gift is that in the failure... It exposes, okay, maybe my heart is not entirely aligned and my allegiance is not solely with Jesus. And so it's a gift because it gives me an opportunity to repent and it also offers a corrective for my life. Here's a question. Okay, show of hands. Anyone in here ever rightly failed to represent Jesus in a situation in your life? If you're not raising your hand, you're doing it right now, okay, because you're lying, all of us have been here, right, uh, where we, we, we've, we've shied away from speaking out or declaring or whatever, but what happens in situations like that? We're, we're, we're actually helped, right? we learn and, and we grow, and it becomes a corrective for us so that the next time we don't make the same mistake. We understand the gift of God's testing. And then look at what he says here at the end of verse 12. 
He says, as though something strange were happening to you. Listen very carefully to me, church. Suffering is not strange for the believer. Did you hear that? Suffering is not strange for the believer. That we, man, we need this word around the normalcy of suffering in the life of a believer. Because what, what, what the end of 4.12 really speaks to is it speaks to the unique place that you and I have found ourselves in historically. You have to understand that 20th and 21st century America, that our experience is not normative. This is not normal. This is wildly unique. We, we have held a unique place historically in comparison to other believers that live around the world today or believers throughout all of human history. What you and I have experienced is wildly foreign to most believers. And this is why we need a biblical theology to shape our perspective. The Bible, listen carefully, the Bible, God's word, is saying suffering's not strange for a believer. It's normal. It's typical. It's what's to be expected. Now, we're all freaking out, and we're all anxious, and we see all the stuff that's going on, and what's happening, and why is this? Let me tell you what's happening. Normalcy is descending upon us. That's what's happening. This isn't weird. This isn't odd. It's just speaking to our unique place, and it's why we need to be submitted to what God has said, not what society has said or even history has said, because an improper expectation is going to lead to disillusionment. It's, it, disillusionment. it's going to lead to disorientation. And some of us are confused about what's happening because we think the last 200 years in our particular setting is what's normative. It's not. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by suffering. That's the biblical norm. Believers before you suffered. That's what Peter's saying. Your Savior suffered. Jesus told us in John 15, the world's going to hate you. What part of hate you uh, translates into comfortable and easy? None of it. It's not strange. In fact, this is exactly what God told us would happen. God help us that we'd have a biblical expectation. We are not to be surprised by suffering. I told you we were in the deep end. It's only going to get deeper. Look at verse 13 and following. Here's the second thing we see. That we rejoice in suffering. You're like, what? No. Yep, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Right? So not, not only are we not to be surprised, but we're, we're actually to rejoice that we're to rejoice in our suffering. Now, now, let me clarify here. He's not saying that we should love the pain, right? Like, oh, I can't wait to be miserable. That's my favorite place. No, that's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is that we rejoice with what comes in and through suffering. Namely, look at the end of verse 13, when his, God's glory is revealed. See, we rejoice because God's glory is going to be revealed. Notice a, a, a couple of things specifically that Peter gives us here in these verses. First of all, in verse 13, we see that we share in Christ's sufferings. Right? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Right? When we suffer for Jesus, we're identifying with him. 
that we share with him, that there's a, a privilege that we're connected to, associated with Jesus, that we can relate with him and that we can sympathize with him because we're sharing with him. You might say, well, um, I, I'm happy to share the blessings with Jesus. I'm happy to share the, the, the glory and the love and the mercy and the grace. But like, is there an exemption for the suffering part? Not if you want to identify with Jesus. Helen Rosevere was a British medical doctor, spent decades, at that time it was Zaire, working in Africa as a missionary. And after she'd been there about 20 years, a revolution swept across the country, and a part of that revolution uh, resulted in intense persecution for her and some of her coworkers. And so after months of this brutality that they experienced, Rosevere began to feel and wonder that maybe God had abandoned her. Maybe God had forgotten her. And so in this, this moment that she describes as this overwhelming sense of God's presence, she says, it was as if God was speaking directly to me. And here's what she said about that encounter. That God was saying to her, Helen, 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. Now listen to this next line. These are not your sufferings. They are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. Rejoicing comes with the ability to identify with Christ. I mean, her, her statement is striking. Do, do you want to be identified with me? This is it. This is what it means. That you're going to suffer like I suffer. And so, loved ones, listen, as you suffer, you can find comfort and you can find hope that you're actually sharing with Jesus. Let that prompt gratitude in the ways that Jesus has gone before us and suffered on our behalf. Right? Because you think about it, Jesus, Jesus has suffered for our sin and our rebellion. Right? We identify with him and his sufferings, but he suffered ha having done nothing wrong. Right? He volitionally suffered so that we could be reconciled and saved unto God. It's incredible. And what we see at the end is not how we tend to think of sufferings, but it says we can be glad. When's the last time you were glad for your suffering? I'm not sure any of us have ever said, I'm glad for it, but here's why you can be glad. Not just this random happiness, but because notice that his glory is revealed. Loved one, hear me. Hear me. Our suffering has the ability to reveal and unveil God's glory. That's powerful. That is powerful. Think about this for a moment. I want you to think about the end of all things. When, when God's glory is entirely and completely revealed. When all of creation will, will, will declare and proclaim the supremacy of Jesus. I think about Philippians 2, right? Every, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it won't just be humanity. The angelic realms 
will utter the same things. All of creation will join in that chorus. The rocks and the mountains and the cosmos and the rivers and the oceans and the waves will join in that as well. Your suffering is a foreshadowing. It's a mini version of that end result. When you suffer, you can be glad because in, in, in miniature form, you are revealing God's glory, which, by the way, is the very reason that you and I even exist. And so choose to see your suffering as an opportunity to unveil God's glory. We share in Christ's suffering. Notice in verse 14, we're blessed with God's Spirit. Right? Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Again, not how we tend to think, but there it is in God's Word. Why are we blessed, Peter? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, if you're insulted for Jesus, you're blessed. And you might be like, how does that work? Because blessing, the blessing and the insult is found in the evidence that the spirit actually rests upon you. Because there's an interesting connection that Peter is making here. He, he uses this line at the end of verse 14 where he's talking about the spirit of glory and the spirit of God resting upon you. And he's actually taking that from Isaiah chapter 11. Now, in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 11 is Isaiah's, he, he's foreshadowing Jesus, and he's pointing us to Christ, and he says this in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now, the, the branch of Jesse, that's the line of David. This is after David, so we know he's talking about Jesus. Look at what he says next. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. See, see, what Peter's doing is he's saying the same spirit that rested on Jesus and enabled him to accomplish his mission is the same spirit that's going to rest and reside in you. That's a powerful truth, isn't it? That the same spirit that, that, that resided on Christ is, is who presently resides in us, who leads us, who guides us, who encourages us in the mission that God has for us. We're blessed by his spirit. And so we can rejoice in our suffering because we're blessed with God's spirit. God's spirit manifests God's glory in and through us. And we become agents of his glory by and through God's spirit. And so just ask yourself, can you see the suffering? Can you see that suffering enables you to identify with Jesus? Can you see how your suffering would lead to the revealing of God's glory? And even if you can't, loved ones, will you choose to be glad that you can reveal God's glory, even if it means your own suffering in this life? We're to rejoice in suffering. Verse 15 kind of feels like this random out of place verse. Because now here, look at what he says. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And essentially what he's saying is, hey, don't confuse the natural consequence for your sin with actual suffering. Right? Because natural consequences are just that. If you sin, you're going to choose to suffer. But that's not because you're being righteous. It's because you chose to defy God. Right? This is the same principle that we see in Galatians 6, uh, that you're going to reap what you sow. If you plant tomatoes, you're not going to harvest peaches. 
right? You're going to have tomatoes or, or nothing or bugs, right? But you're, you're not going to have something else. If you sow sin, you're going to reap the consequences of sin. He's like, guys, that, that, that's, not, that's not what we're going for. That's, we don't rejoice in that kind of suffering. That's just stupid rebellion and don't do it. But then notice where he moves in verses 16 to 18. It says that we're not ashamed of suffering. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, th- th- this is an intriguing exhortation uh, because we're told to not be ashamed. And I think it's intriguing because uh, what you often find is, is that there is a sense of shame that, that accompanies those who, who suffer. And yet Peter's saying, no, no, you, you don't have to be ashamed. And, and there's a reason that you don't have to be ashamed, and it's what he says in verse 16, that we have an opportunity to glorify God. Right? So, so our suffering is an opportunity to glorify God, but notice specifically what he says, in that name. What does he mean by in that name? It's a reference to your association with Jesus, that you are a Christian, that you are a believer, that you're a Christ follower. You ever had a situation where you didn't want people to know that you were a Christian? Right, maybe at work, or you're at school, or a group of friends. They're mocking Christians. Oh, what a bunch of idiots. Can't believe they believe that. Now, for me, anytime I'm in mixed company, this is very much on the table, especially when the conversation of what do you do for work comes up. Because no joke, I'm a pastor. Conversation's over. Like, they're just done. They don't even even say bye, right? Just turn and walk away. And yet, not to be ashamed in that, it's actually an opportunity to glorify God in our association with Him. And as you think about that, I want you to think about who's writing these verses. It's Peter. Right, the guy who boasted, I'll never deny Jesus, and then promptly denied Jesus three different times, right? And so if anyone understands the shame, it's, it's Peter. And yet as bad as he was at the crucifixion, he was a wildly different person after the resurrection, right? He understood the shame in denying Jesus, but he also learned that suffering is an opportunity because what we see in the book of Acts Right, is his boldness reveals this complete reversal. And he's declaring to the religious leaders, we have to obey God. We must obey God rather than men. We're not going to do what you tell us to do. We're going to do what God has told us to do. And so after being imprisoned and after being beaten for the declaration of the gospel, here's how Luke concludes Acts chapter 5. It says, They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Peter had come full circle, right? He saw that the opportunity of God's glory far exceeded the disapproval of man that had paralyzed him earlier. Here's my question to all of us. Why is the approval of man so important to us? Like, what, what, what is gained in that? What is achieved? How is our life made better because someone else likes me? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, like what, what, what is improved? What, and I get it. None of us want to be hated by everybody. 
but, but to the point and the degree. Like, what, what, what can man give to me? What can they do for me? Why is it that we covet their approval and we go to great lengths to get their endorsement while simultaneously rejecting the only one who can truly do anything for us, right? When you think about it in that context, you're like, it's, it's incredibly silly that we can have God's approval, but instead we go and chase man's approval. See, we're not ashamed because we realize that suffering is an opportunity to glorify God. So God help us, God help us, God help us, that we'd be people who would want to make known our allegiance to Jesus. No shame, just glory. And then he goes on and he says in verse 17 and 18, right, we're not ashamed because we will come through judgment. Now, now, up until this point in the book, judgment comes to those outside of God's household. But look at what he says in verse 17. Here he's talking about judgment coming to the household of God. He says, for it's time, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, you, you have to understand the purpose of judgment, Right? Judgment for the believer is to purify from sin. Judgment for the non-believer is to expose sin and to reveal uh, the evidence of the su subsequent judgment that is coming. And so what, what Peter's doing here is he's reminding uh, his audience that God will purify those who are his. See, suffering is intended to purify believers. God is going to refine, God is going to prune so that we are purified and conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. You ever pruned a fruit tree or maybe a grapevine? You cut away all the necessary branches. And then what happens? The plant is far healthier and it's far more productive. In fact, Spurgeon wrote about this. He talked about an apricot tree that his family had. And he said, they pruned that thing so far back, I was convinced that branches and leaves would never grow on it again, much less fruit. And then he says, but you know what happened the next year? We had apricot coming out of our ears. We had pies and jams and fresh fruit, and the birds had never eaten so much. See, here's what you have to understand. If God is putting you through a season of suffering, know that he has a plan of abundance and productivity in your future. He's refining you for a purpose. And so you can have confidence that God's pruning today is going to lead to future production tomorrow. Right, so God is going to purify his church, but God is also going to expose those who are not his. Right? What's going to be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? God here is exposing that rebellion will be judged. What will happen to the ungodly? What will happen to the sinner? Judgment will come for them. They will not be spared. They will not rest under the atoning blood of Jesus. They will fall under the full wrath and judgment of God. And so this actually is a, a, a merciful and gracious word that, that, that God is exposing in this moment those who are not actually his, and he's revealing their need that they need to repent and to be restored to Christ. And this may actually be a word for you that God might be revealing to you. You're not actually his. 
And God is calling you, God is inviting you today to repent of your sin. He's inviting you to be spared of the wrath that you deserved and to be reconciled under the atoning blood of Jesus. That's the only way any of us can ever be saved. That may be the very word for you this morning that God has, revealing you're not actually His and that you need to repent and be restored to Christ. We are not ashamed of suffering. So I notice here's the final thing. Look at verse 19. This is the deepest water. You're like, I'm already drowning. Well, maybe a life preserver's coming. We'll see. Here it is, that we suffer according to God's will. I mean, this is the knockout punch, not just for this seven, eight verses, but for the last number of chapters. Here's what he says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will That's a line, isn't it? Let me read that again, because you didn't hear me wrong, but I want to make sure it sinks in. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's a stunning word, isn't it? Your suffering is a part of God's will. (laughs) You ever ask the question, what's God's will for my life? You might not want to ask that all of a sudden, right? You're like, oh no, it's, it's 1 Peter 4.19. In fact, now, here's what I know. None of you will ask me, hey, I'm really struggling to think through what God's will for my life. I'm not going to get that question for a while because you know I'm going to be like, well, let's turn to 1 Peter 4 and here's what it says. That's what he's saying. And yet it's also wildly reassuring because our suffering isn't, it's not vain. It's not pointless. It's accomplishing a purpose. Further, it's proving that God is fully in control. Our suffering is actually in alignment with God's sovereign plan. And so make note of a few things that Peter says here. First of all, when we think about suffering according to God's will, first this idea that we entrust our souls to God. We entrust our souls to God. This is the idea that we give ourselves, we release ourselves, we release any sense of autonomy over to Jesus. Now, now, we see this over and over again in the New Testament. New Testament authors, in fact, Peter will begin, Second Peter, uh, by doing this as well. But New Testament authors would describe themselves as doulos or slaves of Christ. And, and what they're capturing in that is this idea that we are fully given over to the Lord. We have entrusted ourselves entirely to Jesus And so what this means is that we choose to trust his plan in his timing, in his way, for his glory. That God's sovereign orchestration of our lives, even in our suffering, that we're trusting that. Even if we can't see uh, what, what, what God's doing in a particular moment. There's a great old hymn. It's called, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's written by a guy named William Cowper. And check this out, it was written after he tried to commit suicide and failed. So this is not written by some guy in the fullness of, I am loving my life. No, this is in the pit of despair and deep despondency. And yet I think the song so captures this idea of what it is to entrust our souls to God. So I'm going to read you the lyrics. Here's what it says. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up bright designs 
and works his sovereign will. He's saying in the depths of darkness, God is sovereignly working something glorious. He goes on. He says this, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. He's saying what appears to be bad is actually a blessing. You just can't see it yet. He goes on. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He's saying you don't know all that God is doing in a particular moment. You don't know all that he's accomplishing. Just trust God. Trusting God is always best. And then he finishes with this. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And his point is, you can entrust yourself to God because his plan is good, his purposes are good, and they will be accomplished. Uh, and, and while we may not be able to see it immediately, we can entrust ourselves to God. And here's why we can entrust ourselves to God. Look at what he says next. Because God is faithful. Right? We're reminded that God is faithful. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. You can entrust yourself to God because he's faithful. Now notice, it's not telling you to be faithful. That ain't going to happen. Peter is reminding them God is faithful. So this past week, uh, Pastor Brian asked me, he's getting ready for summer camp. They're doing the attributes of God. Uh, one, of, one of the sessions that he'll do is on the faithfulness of God. And he said, Mike, when you think of the faithfulness of God, what verse comes to your mind? I was like, verse? What do you mean, what verse? How about all the verses? And we kind of laughed and joked about that. And I went back to my office, and I was thinking on that, and, and I, I really was. I was like, no, it really is all the verses. Like, I, I was stunned that the, not really stunned, but just struck by the fact that the entirety of the Bible chronicles the faithfulness of God. You have God's faithfulness in creation. You have God's faithfulness to spare Adam and Eve. You, got to have, you have God's faithfulness uh, to Noah and to see them through the flood. You have God's faithfulness with Abraham and, and the promises that, that he ultimately fulfills. You have God's faithfulness to Joseph, right? And, and God's faithfulness to Joseph isn't just to Joseph. It's actually to Abraham's promise because he preserves the line so that they don't starve when the famine comes. And God's faithfulness to Moses to lead the people out of slavery. And God's faithfulness through the Exodus that they're led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And they're taken into the promised land and they're fed with manna. And God's faithfulness through prophets and kings to warn over and over and over again to repent. God's faithfulness to take them into exile so that they see that he's serious. And God's faithfulness to return them to the land, and God's faithfulness to give them a savior, and God's faithfulness to give us the church, and to give us his spirit. Where has God not been faithful? That's the question. So ask yourself, is there any place, any place, any place in your life you're doubting God's faithfulness, and you are questioning God's care? And where do you need to be reminded that God is faithful? And if you are struggling with that, then just go open your Bible to any page because what you will find on every page of the Bible is the enduring faithfulness of God. You can entrust your souls to God because He is a faithful 
God. And then here's the final thing Peter says. Look at this last little phrase. While doing good, we keep doing good. Now, this is an echo of the charge that came to us back in chapter 3, that, that, that we retaliate to evil and reviling with blessing, that we continue to do good in spite of mistreatment and malignment. It's a counterintuitive word, but it's a word that is on repeat throughout the book of 1 Peter, and it's a word that we need today. And here's why we can keep doing good, because we've entrusted our souls to a faithful creator. Now, here's what I want you to consider This phrase, this last little phrase, while doing good, this is the only thing you and I have any control over. Of all that we've looked at today, the only thing you actually have any control over is to continue to do good, right? And it's the only thing that we're going to be accountable for, right? What what did we do? What was our response? Well, how do we speak, behave, live? What was our conduct? Did we keep doing good? You can't control your suffering, You're not going to be able to control the events of your life. You can't control the people in your life. You can't control uh, others' responses. There's actually very little in your life that you can control. And if you start to think at any point in time, you know, I've got a little more control than, than others, I present to you the weather and traffic. Take a shot at it, right? Because that will humble you in a heartbeat. What we can control is that we would continue to do good. And Peter has drilled this principle over and over and over again. Our conduct is the credibility for our witness. Let us do good. And so question, what happens when we respond to evil with goodness? What happens when we respond to reviling with goodness? What happens when we respond to maligning with goodness? People take notice, and it becomes a platform for the proclamation of God's glory. And so, loved one, will you keep doing good so as to speak for God's glory? God prepares us for suffering and equips us to respond for his glory. Let us be people who are not surprised. Let us be people who don't think that it's strange. Let us rejoice in our opportunity to display and reveal God's glory, not ashamed, but that we would keep doing good as we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. Let's pray. Oh, gracious heavenly Father, God, we're thankful for the ways that your word in precise form cuts ultimately for our healing and our good. Father, I pray that you would help us, first of all, to believe that. To believe what you've said. Not what we want, but what you've said. To believe that you're using our suffering for your glory and for our good. That you're accomplishing something greater than what we can see that's right in front of us. That, God, what you will bring to pass, we will revel and marvel and find delight and joy in, even if it's not in this day or even in this life. Father, would you help us to believe it? God, would you help us to know that you've prepared us, that you've equipped us, and that what we get to do is to respond for your glory.
Father, we pray that you would help us to do this, and we pray this in your name.